Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello and welcome to Battle Walks. We are back after a little break and uh, thank you for joining us again as we walk the great battlefields of Europe. Thank you for contacting us. We had so many people coming back to us during our short summer break asking when we would be back and telling us how much they enjoy the podcast. So thank you so much for that. It's always great to get feedback. So please keep doing that. Send us your comments on Facebook. Send us tweets via Twitter and just let us know you're out there and that you're enjoying the show. Uh, Another announcement is you can now support the show if you're enjoying it through Buy Me A Coffee. This is a great initiative where you can jump online and and support the the podcast with a a small contribution, which is fantastic because the more people we get doing that, the more great episodes we can do and the more people we get finding out about the podcast, joining us and, and sharing in this great community we're establishing. In addition to that, I'm going to bring in right now my co-host, Pete Smith. Pete, g'day. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Matt. Great to be back. Having had a nice break, a nice summer's break, but uh, yeah, great to be back again. Well, you're living over there in the good weather, mate, so I'm glad you're making the most of it. And it's it's exciting for us. Another announcement while we're doing these housekeeping things is that you're going to be leading tours for us out of the UK for our UK passengers. Hopefully it won't be too long before our Australian passengers can get back over and start visiting the battlefields. But for our UK listeners who want to visit the battlefields, they can go with you now. We have tours available with Pete Smith walking the battlefields of the Western Front. It's very exciting. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to it. it uh, it'll be nice to uh, to take some Brits around, um, as well as uh, our regular Australian clients. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting back out there again. So if you want to travel with Pete, and I recommend that you do, basically live in the experience that you get on this Battle Walks podcast, go and visit our, our website. It's only for UK travellers at the moment, but it's battlewalks.co.uk. You can learn all about those tours and you can come and visit the battlefields and walk the ground with Pete Smith. So get, jump on that website and check that out. 
today's podcast. It's going to be really interesting. A little bit of a departure. We're not walking a battlefield, but we're in the middle of the Olympic season. We've just had the, uh, the, the Summer Olympics taking place. The Paralympics are on as we speak. And so we wanted to talk about a connection between Olympians and the battlefield. So, Pete, why don't you give us the rundown on what we're going to be talking about today? Okay, so what we wanted to do is have a look at uh, those that had taken part in the Olympic Games either prior to the Great War or post uh, after the uh, the Great War, and who had served uh, in the military. So I just thought it was a, as a great idea. Sadly, not all of them will make it through the, the Great War, but it... Uh, yeah, it just seemed like a good thing to do, to have a look, because it's the early days of the Olympics, to have a look at those early days of the Olympics and also some of those athletes that uh, that, that took part uh, in, in one way or another in the Great War. Well, it's a great idea, mate, and the Olympics is about the world coming together, and it's it's fascinating to think that through times of recent history, the Olympics have been disrupted by war. That that, that, that I mean, at, at some stages, it's still gone ahead in some capacity, either, either in the lead up or immediately after a war. But the the Olympics were disrupted by war, so it's 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 always fascinating to me the link between sport and war as well. Is that you tend to get it? To, it, it tends to be seen by a lot of the soldiers as the ultimate sporting event is to go off and, and fight in a war. So there's always been a very strong connection between sport and war. And we're looking at a couple of, uh, we're focusing on Australians for this uh, for this episode, but a couple of uh, very prominent Australians who went off and, and uh, not only served in the war, but also participated in the Olympics. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's been. It was interesting for me to have a look at some of the uh, some of the sports within the Olympics. And when you start looking at them carefully, you realise that there is a big element of, of kind of military skill. You know, that there's obviously always been shooting, uh, the skiing, and just so many things. That some sports don't exist anymore. There was the tug of war. Uh, swinging um, uh, clubs, so club swinging—it's something that the that was done in the military. It was done by civilians to keep you fit, but it was definitely had a military feel to it. So there was an awful lot of the of the sports had a distinct military uh, military feel. Uh, interestingly, in doing the research for this, I looked at some of the sports that no longer exist, and one of those sports was actually uh, uh, not target pistol shooting. It was it was literally it was uh, using your uh, the old duels, so dueling pistols, and you had mock duels taking place, and uh, and they would uh, the, you were sc- you were scored on your hitting the target in these mock duels. So just fascinating. So, so some things uh, they even proposed. I think one of the more interesting ones they even proposed. And this was just after the first world war throwing the hand grenade and the lobbing the grenade as uh, would this be a great olympic sport and i think they yeah, i think too many people have been throwing grenades in the first world war so they decided not to go ahead with that sport just extraordinary and i mean we see things as well about at the start of the first world war there was a big push to join the sportsman's 1000 you know get out and if you're a sportsman this is the ultimate challenge for you to join up with other sportsmen and put down the golf clubs and jump out of the pool and head off and prove your worth on the field of battle as opposed to the sporting field. So there's always been this very strong connection. And it, it, it's it's amazing when you read Victoria Cross citations about how how many of the men that that achieved great things on the battlefield had been captain of their local football team or you know or a, or a, a, an athlete before the war or a great runner. It just seems a theme that uh, that 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 meanders through this history. So I think this is going to be a really exciting way to to look at the Olympics in a, in a bit of a new light. Yeah, I think I think it's fascinating. And going back to those the, those posters, the recruiting posters, I mean, what a fantastic thing to collect. Uh, I, I love them. I haven't uh, ever been able to uh, get the money together to buy uh, some of the, the posters that you can get. But yeah, that sporting theme runs through an awful lot of the recruiting posters. 
Another thing to say is, as well, of course, is that a soldier's life on the Western Front or elsewhere in Egypt or wherever he may be, uh, both prior to the war uh, and after the war and during the war, there was a massive element of sport because to keep the men occupied and they're trying to really, what they're trying to do is keep them away from the women and the booze, but keep them occupied behind the lines, organised some sports games. And so there were some great sporting occasions that took place behind the lines during the war. I was reading a war diary the other day, and uh, of one of the one of the units, and and um, actually went into the months after the end of the war. So this was the time when they were kicking around in the UK or in France, waiting to be sent back to Australia. And uh, there was a lot of sporting events taking place at that time. And for example, the Australian Corps taking on the Royal Flying Corps in a game of rugby and defeated <laughs> the Australians won forty two nil against the Royal Flying Corps and. Uh, you know the the uh, well the the air force as it was at the time the royal air force and um, just just extraordinary the um, the engagements that took place all they seemed to do in that year after the war ended before they got back to Australia was kick a ball around and play sport because there was bugger all else for them to do exactly and the, and and there had been some quite severe riots uh, uh, certainly one of the the more severe riots with, with with the Canadian soldiers and actually some Canadian soldiers were killed uh, uh, they were shot by actually British soldiers trying to put down the riots so that there had been riots both in France here and in, and in Britain and so it was thought that sport would counter that while the men were kicking their heels waiting to be discharged and sent back to various parts of the empire. Uh, that uh, that sport would uh, would hopefully keep their mind uh, away from uh, from other things, uh, and so yes, yeah, sport became a, a very very important in that period as men kicked their heels waiting to be uh, to be discharged back home. Well, let's um let's get going talking about some of these historians. Who are we going to start with? Well, I, I want to start with somebody who. Um, I've got to know very well over the years, uh, metaphorically, of course, he's uh, long since gone, but uh, Cecil Healy, um, he was a, a, an Olympic swimmer prior to the Great War. Uh, there's a swimming pool in Peron, the nearest, uh, one of the nearest towns to where I live here in France, and uh, the pool that uh, my children swim in and uh, my partner Sarah go, goes swimming and uh, do, doing exercise there, and I go with the children swimming as well. It's known as it's the Cecil Healy uh, uh, pool. So Cecil Healy is the, f- the first person that we want to have a look at, I think. Well, that's, uh, Cecil Healy has a very strong connection to me as well, Pete, because uh, I'm from the northern beaches of Sydney. That's where I where I live, and uh, pretty much every day when I go for a walk down along Manly Beach, there's uh, I go past the surf club where Cecil um, was uh, was a member, and there's a big plaque in his honour out the front of the surf club. The surf club I, I I had a look the other day and sadly discovered it was built in the 30s, the building, so it wasn't actually the building that Cecil knew. Uh, when he was at Manly, but uh, but there's a there's a plaque remembering him there, and uh, and many of his achievements are recorded inside that surf club as well. So tell us a bit more about Cecil Healy. Yeah, well, I'll just I'll just go over that uh, the surf club's issue, uh, interesting issue because uh, in doing the research on Cecil, then I became very much aware that uh, he'd been involved in uh, in in the surf clubs uh, close to Manly, and uh, I, I certainly just reading between the lines, uh, and you could probably expand on it a, a little bit, Matt, is that there was obviously a lot of rivalry between the surf clubs. I was I would guess, and uh, he, he joined the uh, East Sydney Amateur Swimming Club. Uh, and the North Stein, is that the way you say that word? Stein? Uh, Stein. North Stein. North Stein yes. and I always say it wrong. You can guarantee if there's a way of saying it, I'll say it wrong. So, <laughs> so yeah, so he joined the uh, their Surf Life uh, Saving Club and uh, was also um, uh, a gold honour badge uh, holder of the Manly Surf Club uh, in 1907. So he was involved in, in several of the surf clubs in the area. Well, it's interesting discussing those surf clubs because uh, I, Manly is where I first lived when I moved from the bush 
uh, many years ago, 25 years ago. And so it's quite well known in the Manly area, but it's interesting. It's a long beach, Manly. It's about a kilometre and a half long, so about a mile long. And there's three surf clubs on that stretch of beach. And, you know, today it's not such a big deal because everyone's very friendly and gets on very well. But you're right, back in the day there was quite a rivalry. So there's the main surf club, which is at South Stain, which is the one that was is generally just referred to as Manly Surf Club. And then at the northern end of the beach is Queenscliff Surf Club, which is another big one. And then in the middle is this tiny little one called North Stain, and that's the one that gets a bit overlooked. But that was the one that Cecil was most closely associated with, and that's where he is now remembered and recorded. And it's a cute little building. It's the old, it's the only original building dating from the 1930s. The other surf clubs are very modern. And it's a it's a cute little spot right in the middle of Manly Beach. Very overlooked when it comes to to surf events and, and, and sports. Uh, North Stain gets a little bit overlooked, but it's a, it's a good little link with history, that club. As I said, sad that the building is only, only dates from the 1930s, so Cecil Healy wouldn't have actually seen that building, um, but um, it's still a very uh, strong link with the history of, uh, of Cecil Healy. Yeah, oh, that's great. Thanks for the info. <laughs> I'll add it to my, uh, to my <laughs> records. <laughs> Tell he, us more about Cecil. Yeah, sure thing. So he was born on the 28th of November in 1881 in Darlinghurst. Have I said that name right? I think I've got that one right. Correct. Very good. Very good. This is a great, uh, a great tour through uh, through the many places of, of Australia for you. Um, his uh, his father uh, was uh, called Patrick uh, Joseph Healy, and he was a barrister. So you can tell from that that this is uh, this is a fairly well healed family, uh, and he was the uh, he was the third son, so born uh, born in Australia, educated. Of, and here we go again. Bowral, is that right? Primary school at very Bowral. good, mate. Bowral, well done. <laughs> So uh, Bowral, uh, and straight away, even that he's also, also the home of um, also the home of Don Bradman, I should say. So a good sporting pedigree out that way. Yeah, and, and I think he obviously came from a sporty family and would have been pushed in that di- direction, I, I suspect, and obviously was a very good swimmer. Um, because in 1895, he won the 66-yard uh, handicap race uh, at the old uh, Sydney, oh dear, here we go again, Natatorium. I think that's right, Sydney Natatorium. Um, and, it's a uh, word I'm not familiar with, natatorium. Yeah, I don't know what that means, actually. What the heck is yeah, a natatorium? Anyway, um, yeah, so uh, so straight away uh, involved in swimming and he's going to uh, both uh, continue uh, after his primary school. He went to uh, a college in Sydney. Go on, Matt, what's this college called? <laughs> uh, St. Aloysius he went to. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We were discussing this uh, earlier about uh, how I pronounced this name. Uh, so, yeah, so uh, Aloysius College in uh, in Sydney and steadily improved. And in 1901, um, with others, he won the 500 yards. This I keep struggling with this because it keeps changing from when I was researching this from yards to, to metres. So I'm going to do it in both in this case. 500 yards, 455 metres, flying squadron team race. Uh, and this is in the the New South Wales Championships, uh, and this was the first time of many that he uh, that he uh, that he was successful. His team uh, won that uh, competition, um, and uh, he he was involved in middle distance racing, and so it, it's ongoing. It's ongoing. I'm not going to read out all of his uh, all of his awards as we slowly work our way towards eventually him being involved uh, in the uh, in the Olympics. Um, interestingly, one of the guys that he was regularly racing again, and we're going to be talking about him during this podcast as well, is uh, Frank Burrapair, uh, who was also a swimmer, and uh, Healy and him very often uh, swam against each uh, uh, swam against each other. Um, 
So by the time we get to the 1912 Stockholm Olympics, going to take place in Stockholm, he was considered to be one of the world's best swimmers. So you get the idea of how his uh, his uh, his fame has slowly spread around the world, and eventually, I say, by 1912, seen as uh, one of the world's uh, best swimmers. So Stockholm, 1912, and he became part of the gold medal uh, record-winning 4x200 freestyle relay team. So he's part of the uh, of the relay team, but that's not why he's really remembered. Um, do you know why he's remembered, Matt? Sorry, I know I'm just throwing that straight at you, but I just wondered if you uh, if you if you know anything about uh, what why he's why he's well remembered because it's extraordinary, really. I think there's a surfing link, but I can't remember the specifics of, of what actually happened with, with Cecil. No, C- C- Cecil is remembered for really for for throwing uh, the opportunity for him to, uh, to to win another individual gold medal. And um, it's, it's an interesting story, and it's about, I suppose it's him, it's the man himself. Because what happens is that because of a mix-up in the, uh, in the heats... Uh, he realises that all of his competitors, and these are the competitors that potentially are going to cause him a, a real problem in trying to get the, the gold medal, are disqualified. And they're disqualified because they don't make it to the, uh, to the, at the right time at the right place. So there was a, a the confusion. So they're disqualified, which would have put Healy as almost certainly he would have won the gold medal because, because all of the people that were his main competitors and the, the most important one was a chap, uh, a chap called Duke uh, Kahanamuku. I have no doubt that I am saying that wrong. I'm going to try again. Kahanamuku. That's what it looks like anyway. Um, and uh, he's an American and he uh, he's going to actually win the gold medal. But he was one of the ones that had been disqualified for not turning up. So they appeal and they have their appeal turned down. They, they appeal. The, they're all nearly all Americans. I think they're all Americans apart from one. And they have their uh, appeal turned down. And uh, he goes uh, back and appeals on their behalf and basically says, I will not swim if you do not reinstate them. And so these guys are reinstated into the uh, into the final and he gets the silver. Uh, Healy gets the silver medal. He didn't get the uh, the gold. The Duke beat him. And so he effectively shot himself in the foot, but he did it deliberately. I mean, it's a fantastic piece of sportsmanship um, and one that is remembered to this uh, to this day. And in fact, in 2018, the Australian Olympic Committee uh, created a sportsman's award in honour of what he uh, what he did in these 1912 Olympics uh, um, and also marking the 100th anniversary of his uh, of his death. Because as we're going to discuss, sadly, he is going to be killed during the during the First World War. Well, that was the uh, when I when I recalled a when I recalled a surfing. Uh... Uh, connection that was uh, that was why because Duke uh, Kahanamuku was uh, the the bloke that brought surfing to Australia again it so many coincidences in the next beach along from where Cecil Healy uh, swam uh, in his uh, in his career uh, at uh, at uh, Freshwater Beach was where where the Duke introduced surfing to Australia from Hawaii to Australia. Uh, that's a, I knew he was a Hawaiian, but that's fascinating. Of course, I should have got the link: Hawaiian surfing and uh, and Australia. Uh, that's that's really interesting, Matt. Didn't know that at all. So uh, yeah, so it's literally only a, a, probably a kilometre from where Cecil Healy would have swum in the surf was where Duke first came out and wowed Australians by riding a surfboard in the surf. And obviously now, um, very much uh, in the same stretch of beach where Cecil Healy swam in the surf is now where uh, is a very popular surfing spot. So these little connections of history yeah. weave their way through the whole story. 
Well, there's another one that I'm just going to mention casually as well, because in the 1912 Olympics was where uh, Fanny Durack also swam in, in the first time that women could take place, uh, uh, took part in uh, in uh, in swimming, uh, in women's Olympic swimming team. So, uh, and she will win a, a gold medal as well. Uh, and of course, we remember Fanny Durack. Not of course, of course, for people that do not know, Fanny Durack is remembered here on the battlefields because of the statue, the Golden Madonna and Child in Albert, which was hit by a shell. Um, I can't remember if we've done the story in one of our podcasts. Perhaps we have, but it it's, uh, it ends up leaning over the town at a uh, ninety degrees. And to the Australian soldiers, it became known as Fanny Durack because it looked like a woman about to dive into the surf, so uh, or into the pool. And so, um, yeah, Fanny Durack is 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 somebody who is in, involved in the Olympics, but certainly was not involved in the Great War in coming out onto the the battlefields. But he's remembered uh, here as well, uh, along uh, along with Cecil Healy. Fanny Durack is perhaps uh, another of the, mo- the more famous Olympiads remembered here on the Western Front. We discussed it in our uh, in our enjoyable podcast we did on the approach march to Pozier. So if people go back and listen to that one, that was when we talked about the famous Fanny Durack, which is what the Australians called, the, as you say, the Leaning Virgin. It's interesting. I think I, I probably mentioned at the time as well that um, when they uh, built the uh, Olympic Stadium and the Olympic um, precinct out at Homebush for the 2000 Olympics and they named all the streets all these new streets after famous Australian Olympians they did name a street after Fanny Durack but obviously their sensibilities got the better of them because they ended up calling it Sarah Durack Avenue which was her first name the reason she was called Fanny of course is her second name was Francis uh, which is where the Fanny came from um, but but obviously it was too much to name a street Fanny Durack Avenue, so they called it Sarah Durack Avenue, and then f- from then on, no one knows who the hell they're actually talking about with the street because she was only ever known as Fanny Durack. So um, it was a bit of a curious one, but there we go. So when you go down Sarah Durack Avenue, it's uh, it's actually the uh, the connection is to Fanny Durack and the the Leaning Virgin of uh, of Albert. Matt, I'd just like to say, I think you're getting almost as, as good at myself as going off on strange tangents. <laughs> we're, we're both getting good at it. <laughs> we are indeed. We are indeed. We need some sort of bell or some sort of chime when so people know that there's, a, there's, a, there's an obscure tangent coming up. I think that's part of our charm, Pete, that we wander off all over the place. We've, we've often said it that listening to this podcast is a little bit like sitting down and having a beer with Pete and I and just, just the, the, the stream of consciousness that comes along. So, uh, so I think, I think our, our loyal listeners will forgive us for that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so on on to his military career. Uh, so and this is I found this quite interesting. So you would imagine with his education, his standing uh, within the country, that he would have immediately gone for a commission and joined as an officer. Uh, and he doesn't. And in fact, he doesn't enlist until the fifteenth of September, nineteen fifteen. And he's thirty two years old. So you have to think that these you know, most of the guys that are joining are eighteen or less. You know, and so he would have been seen as as a seriously old guy uh, in some of these battalions of, of very young men. The only exception potentially being the the officers. Um, and it's perhaps one of the reasons why he wasn't placed instantly in an infantry battalion. And he actually worked at the second divisional base depot in France. And he was the regimental quartermaster sergeant. Now, interestingly, that puts him almost above a lot of the junior officers. He's the equivalent of God. He's he's running effectively everything. And I think that that shows that they've used him instead of thinking, well, we won't put this guy into a, an infantry battalion. We 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 need him here doing this because this is this is he's obviously very good at organisation. He's a driven man, which we know he was. And so yeah, he was organising uh, the supplies and stores. Uh, for the second division, effectively, so so a very important guy. 
But it wasn't enough for him. And I think he felt he was shirking his responsibilities. We can only guess at what went through these, uh, you know, these people's heads as they're on the Western Front. Uh, it's very difficult to put yourself in their position. But you just know that Cecil would have been a really driven man you know, to, to get where he did with swimming. And so he's, he obviously decides he's not doing enough and he, uh, he requests to be put on an infantry cadet battalion course, so to be trained as an infantry officer. Um, and he qualifies for a commission in the May of 1918. So he did that job as the regimental quartermaster sergeant for quite some time, and it's not until the May of 1918 that he's appointed a second lieutenant. Well, he's actually the June of 1918, but he's appointed a second lieutenant, and he's taken on the strength of the 19th Battalion in France on the 15th of August. So that's when he, he actually gets to the to the Western Front as a as a, an infantryman. Um, 15th of August, we're in the 100 days. So this is that, uh, that well, not it wasn't for a long, long time. And I've talked about this before, was not really a famous action. The 100 days, it was almost like 100 days of fighting, then the war ends. We now know an awful lot more about uh, what went on within those 100 days, sometimes known as the advance to victory. And um, he's going to be doing what an infantry officer should do. He's leading uh, from the front. He's a second lieutenant still. And uh, he's in the a village of uh, Biarches. I'm not sure that's how you pronounce that either, French village. Uh, and that is just beyond, if you uh, imagine, you're heading due east from Villers Bretonneau. And that's the direction that we're pushing the Germans back. And he is, uh, sadly, he's killed while uh, uh, leading his men in an attack uh, against an enemy machine gun position. And he was uh, shot in the head and, and, and killed outright. And this is the really sad bit. After being on the Western Front, but behind the lines for all that time, he was literally in the line with his battalion, his infantry battalion, for just two weeks before he was, uh, he was killed. He was buried in the field, and it's described as three uh, quarters of a mile northwest of uh, Biarches and one and three quarter miles west of Peron, and a wooden cross uh, was erected. There is, uh, in the Australian War Memorial, a photo of his battlefield grave, um, and uh, it, uh, uh, that was taken on the 21st of September in 1918. And we can see it's not your standard uh, boring, oh, boring, that's not a very good word, uh, it's just standard cross, so a standard cross, aluminium uh, stamping with the wording on of who you are. It wasn't that at all. This was a very uh, fancy well-made cross, almost certainly made by the pioneer section of his battalion. And we know from reading the diaries of the battalions that that's what they did. They went back and put up better crosses than the standard uh, war graves cross uh, produced by the grave registration units. And that's what they did on his, on his, uh, on his grave. Now, I don't know whether his body was then lost at some stage and discovered later on, but it's not until 1926 that his body was exhumed along with four of his men killed at the same time. So in other words, it's a battlefield burial. They were put together uh, and uh, they're all uh, exhumed together in 1926. And he's now, he rests in Asvillia's New British Cemetery. And that's where it were. him and his, uh, his four men that died with him are buried uh, at, uh, uh, today, where we can go and uh, see him. Um, he remains the only Australian Olympic gold medalist to lose his life in the line of duty. So he's the only gold medalist that was actually uh, killed uh, during the First World War. And actually, that, that may be in the line of duty. I'm not quite sure what period that's covering. I must have taken that out. 
of a book somewhere along the line. I didn't didn't uh, scribble down whether it, that's First and Second World War because the line of duty implies that possibly he may be the only one. I'm sure somebody will know. Somebody will put us right. But um, yeah, certainly for the First World War, he was the only Olympic gold medalist to lose his life in the in the line of duty. Uh, as I say, he's not forgotten. His name is uh, is outside the pool uh, where where we go swimming. Um, and in fact, every year they have a competition known as the Cecil Healy Challenge. Now, sadly, in this terrible period we're going through at the moment with the COVID, they've tried to run it this year, but there's so many restrictions, there's so many issues here with people uh, not taking the, uh, not having their jabs and the wearing of masks that they can't get enough people to uh, to take part in it. Uh, Sarah, my other half, she'd uh, put a name down for it, but not enough, and so it was cancelled again for the uh, for the second time. So the Cecil Healy Challenge. Hopefully, we'll try again next year. Um, and that normally consists of, uh, it's a walk uh, and a, a swim. So it's part, part walk, part, uh, part swim. And it would have been the 103rd anniversary of his death, uh, of his death this year. Um, I know he's on the Manly War Memorial. I'm sure you've seen him, Matt. You must have had a look at his name on the Manly War Memorial. I have indeed. I've seen his name both on the War Memorial at Manly and also uh, at the uh, at the Life Saving Club, of course. He's very well commemorated there in two Life Saving Clubs, both uh, Manly and in uh, North Stain, the two clubs uh, about a kilometre apart from each other. Yeah, he's also commemorated on St Aloysius uh, uh, College's Roll of Honour, so he's there as well. Um, and I believe he's commemorated uh, on the uh, the Healy Shield for life saving in New South Wales, so that must be given yearly, presumably as uh, uh, as well. So that's Cecil Healy. I don't know if there's anything else you want to add about him, Matt. I think we've uh, we've done him. Well, it's such a great story, and he's not he's not particularly well known in Australia. He's known in very small circles. Obviously, in Manly, he's very well known. He's known in other for people who know their Olympic history. He's well known. But I think it's it's fascinating. There's another small connection with my family because he was killed. Well, he was killed in the lead up to the Battle of Mont Saint Quentin, which was the most famous action that took place at the end of the, end of August, early September, 1918, and one of the most famous Australian actions. And this is a, this was a small action leading up to that. So he's generally considered to have been killed at Mont Saint Quentin. And um, the men from my hometown in West Wyalong enlisted into the 20th Battalion, and Mont Saint Quentin was their most famous action. So. Mont Saint Quentin for my family has always been an iconic battle, one of the most, uh, the one that we're most drawn to on the Western Front, and it's fascinating that we moved from West Wyalong to Manly, and when we got to Manly, one of Manly's most famous sons was Cecil Healy, who'd been killed at that same battle. So, it, it, again, the ripples of history just 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 travelling along and connecting us all. So, yeah, Cecil, someone who's um, who's very important in my world. And um, someone who deserves more research done about him. There's been a couple of books written about him, but there's always room for more research. So if you're if you've enjoyed hearing Cecil's story, I would certainly I would certainly encourage you to go out and, and learn more about him. Just a, a great all round bloke, a great Australian, a great soldier. Interestingly, I just add, add one little aspect. Uh, Asvillias, where he's actually buried, uh, is is quite away from uh, Mont Saint Quentin, and from in fact where he uh, where he, he sadly lost his life. And I think that's partly due to when he was found, because he was found uh, quite a, a little while after the war. Then there was felt to be no compunction to bury him close by, and so it's one of the cemeteries that would have been an open cemetery that was still taking. Uh, uh, bodies still taking the remains of soldiers and so they end up being moved to Asvillias. Now Asvillias for those that are whistling down the A1 the major motorway linking um, 
linking Lille to Paris, then it's where one of the services, uh, one of the services is actually uh, called Asvillia's uh, services. And uh, and if you stop there, then you can have a think about him. He's literally, if you knew where to look, he's, his grave is literally just by the side of the motorway or the cemetery where he's buried is just by the side of the motorway. Um, so you'll whistle past him if you're on that road between Lille and Paris. And when you say services, Pete, uh, in Australia we'd say a service station, so a services for your car, for petrol and food, which are so important when you're travelling through the battlefield area because it's sometimes the only places in these obscure locations where you can get a cup of coffee and, and a sandwich. So the, the motorway services become your best friend. And in the very, in the very French way, they're, uh, they're exceptionally well done. The quality of the food and coffee and everything you get there is uh, far beyond anything we would see in Australia. The coffee there is very, very good. It's my favourite place to stop whilst on that motorway, I have to say. <laughs> well, Pete, that was the story of Cecil Healy, a fantastic first instalment in this special series of Olympians. We've got several more we're going to talk about as, as we go on throughout the, uh, the, the, the rest of the year. So tune in to hear more about that. But Cecil Healy, a bit of a personal hero of mine and just uh, someone that I think uh, set off this series very, very well. A great Australian, as we said, a great Olympian and, and a great soldier who sadly gave his life like so many of these bright young men did during the First World War. Yes, I'll just give you an insight into who we're going to have a look at the next time when we cover one of the Olympiads, and that's a chap called Claude Angelo. And if you think Cecil Healy wasn't particularly well known, you wait till we start talking about Claude Angelo. Very, very interesting chap. Well, thank you for joining us. Now that we're back on Battle Walks, next week we'll be walking a great battlefield of the uh, of, of Europe once again. We're looking forward to getting out in the field and virtually walking a battlefield. And don't forget uh, to support the podcast if you like what you hear on Buy Me a Coffee forward slash Battle Walks. You can go there and, uh, and contribute if you want to. Uh, and uh, Pete, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. It's really good doing these occasional specials and we look forward to getting back next week and strolling the battlefields, mate. Thanks for joining us. Looking forward to it, Matt. It's been, uh, it's been good. Nice to be back. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member For a small monthly fee, you could subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. 
Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.